0: Our text today is Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful for your word, for our ability to come here today together to study it. So we ask you, Lord, that you impress these words upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths that we may carry them with us everywhere we go. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our world, our greater culture, hates kids. And the parts that don't seem to hate them mostly see them as a burden or possibly just an obligation, even those who helicopter parent them. Our greater culture does not venerate children. And you can see this in the strained relationships that we have between parents and children, even within those, those homes and those families where the marriages are still intact. In fact, our greater culture is okay with murdering and mutilating children. In some places, it's even encouraged. And if you think about it, satanic and tyrannical regimes have always looked to murder and destroy children. Matthew 2, 16-18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Everybody here is familiar with this story. We are familiar with the abortion murder machine in our own country. May it soon be ended. But even, those, but even for those who that don't, don't and aren't, that they out, outright hate children, they are to many just an inconvenience. Something that modern couples ponder, should we have kids? I wonder if we should even have them. Some feel obligated to have children because it's just what they're supposed to do. But there's an even softer side to this as well. Uh, One that our broader culture has painted about kids. One that so many people have bought into is that the idea that raising your children is separate from your life. It's just something you need to kind of fit in, right? That you can still do everything you want to do because it's all about you, it's not. And you just kind of fit in the raising your kids somewhere somewhere into that, as long as they don't hold you back. Because the last thing you would ever want is your children to hold you back. Recently, I was reading this article. It was on Zero Hedge, and it was about the top companies to work for ranked year over year, so last year's top 20 companies to work for. And then I was like, well, I should go down the internet tube and tunnel and go look at some of these websites and see what they're about and see how many of them are like wrapped up in D.I.E. We don't call it D.E.I. here, we call it D.I.E. because it kills everything. Diversity, inclusion, and equity, it just dies. It kills businesses. Uh, what was it? Go woke, stay broke. So one of the companies that was listed on there is called MathWorks, and I teach math. So I was like, I know what MathWorks does. And they are a large math computational software company. They, they provide and build, uh, engineering type math tools and very complicated math tools and they've got a whole bunch of big brained math folks that work there. But they had like articles from their employees about the culture and about working there. So I was like, oh, this should be fun. So I found one from a woman. It was titled Growing a Career and a Family. And then she had her like testimony there and it was really good. And she said, for my family, because I showed my children reliability, dedication, discipline, integrity, responsibility, and professionalism, I believe the best way to teach a strong work ethic and the qualities within is to lead by example. After my third child, we settled into a great routine. The baby went to daycare, and the two older went to pre-K and kindergarten. I was totally on board with her until she outsourced everything at the end what's the best way to teach anything? It's to lead by example. Yes, agreed. Leading by example is the best way to teach anything. But the problem is, what is the example that she is leading by? That she wants to be able to balance these two things that she probably can't actually balance, so she sent them off to be raised by other people. It's a part of the great routine, is I'm going to ask these strangers to, to fill my children full of values that I may not myself Share. So, ship the kids off and have somebody else raise them and have somebody else train them, and occasionally you will do some things together at home. Maybe even if you're lucky, you'll have dinner. I recently did a podcast on this, on the problems of outsourcing your family. I did this once in my life. I've tried this, I've tried both ways. I can speak from experience. So, we don't want to be people that outsource our family, but I think that probably one of the reasons this takes place is not because people have intrinsically bad motives. People aren't like, oh, these kids, you know what? We should have really bad people. Raise them and teach them things that don't happen to be true. No, I think that what what happens is that that it's easy to be bought into this cultural lie that kids are a whole bunch of work, and they're kind of a burden to your life. But they're like a joyous burden, but they're a burden to your life, and it's always going to be hard, and the teenage years are going to be so awful. I mean, we keep trying to give hope to people that teenagers are great. Teenagers are a lot of fun. You're great. You're great. And... You don't buy the lie. Like, it doesn't have to be this huge drag. Your kids are not a boat anchor, right? So, so the cultural lie is that kids, kids are this incredible burden, and there's so much work. So here's some resources that will go take care of them for you. Because all these other things over here are way more important than these, these kids that you have. That's the cultural lie. And I think ultimately it's because in our greater pagan culture, we, we have a love of death, Right? And a greater pagan culture may say that they believe that kids are the future, but they don't really believe it. But here's what I am to tell you is children actually are the future. Children are the future. The world needs more big families, not less. Your children are not a burden. Amen. Amen? Indeed. But to not think of children as a burden, one must have a positive outlook on life. One must have a positive eschatology. Because if it's all getting worse... If it's all overpopulated, if acid rain, that was what was going to kill all of us when we were kids. You remember acid rain? It was going to kill us all. If acid rain is going to melt us all, then why would you even have more children? Why? If it's only going to get worse and you're going to put them in this terrible world, why have more children? If the rapture is going to magically teleport you off into the sky, it's not. Why have more kids? But if you believe in the hope of the gospel... If you believe in what the Bible says, if you believe in the promises of God, then you know that the gospel says that Christendom expands, that the kingdom of heaven grows stronger, that its influence increases, that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, and that children aren't a burden. They are the glorious mechanism of, of growing God's kingdom. They are the hope. They are the future. And our job is to lead by example. But we are not to lead by example of this world. We are to lead by the example of Jesus Christ. And this matters whether you have your own children or not. You see, we are not to neglect the children of God, whether they're yours or they're somebody else's, because they are not a burden. They are the future hope of the kingdom. And we come to our text today right on the heels of what we studied last week. Jesus is talking about divorce. And we talked about the the importance of the secret sauce of marriage and what Paul has to say in Ephesians. And you've got the Pharisees trying to trick him in legalism. Hey, so didn't Moses say you could do this thing? And here you are, right? You've got them trying to trick him in front of a large group of people. And then Jesus, Jesus is really clear and rebukes them. And so it's sometime after that discussion that more people approach him. And we know that crowds, crowds come to Jesus. And with this group of people, they bring very little children. The Greek word that is used in this passage means somewhere, uh, kids that are somewhere between infancy and being toddlers. And these, are, these are kids that are really young. They're kids who can't speak. Many or most of them probably can't walk. And none of them certainly can like, make a testimony of faith. They Can't get up and provide their testimony at the front of the church. And these parents bring their children to Jesus because they wanted to pray him, pray him to pray for their children, to put hands on his children, to bless their children. Matthew 19, 13. Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. This is a little bit surprising, isn't it? Jesus finishes teaching on marriage and divorce, <laughs> and now families, probably the people that are married bring small children to Jesus. The same Jesus that had recently told the disciples that they must approach Jesus like a child. Like a child. And how do the disciples react? They rebuke the people that are bringing the children to Jesus. Calvin, in his commentary, states that, that the disciples thought that Jesus was possibly unworthy to receive these children. The children were, sorry, not Jesus, that the children were unworthy to be received by Jesus. They they weren't intellectually and at a maturity level where they could receive and understand what Jesus had to offer them. Calvin says that they may have questioned what was the high priest to do with infants? How is he going to minister to infants? Calvin continues to say that those who judge unfairly based on their feelings of the flesh are unfair judges. Here the disciples are judging based on their desires, what they feel. Whether they believed the children were an interruption of their time with Jesus, or they felt that the high priest, the highest prophet, the Messiah, they may have felt that his time should have been spent elsewhere. Don't spend your time with these infants, Jesus. We know you best. Spend your time over here where it can be better used. Answer the questions of the people over here. Answer our questions. Take care of us. (laughs) Their flesh caused this approach, and, and for them to rebuke these people that brought their children... Not Jesus' reaction. And, and the point is, they were missing the point. They, they rebuke these people because of their unfair judgment of them. Their own problems with children. Their own problems with maybe what they feel is the interruption of these children's, of G, uh, children of Jesus' time. Matthew 19, 14. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And it's... This is where understanding Greek becomes really helpful. I know most of you were studying Greek before you came here this morning, so that you will find this helpful. But if you didn't study Greek this morning, I'll give you a hint here. If, if, if we look at this text in the Greek, we actually get to see the emotion and the firmness that Jesus is talking to the disciples. In the English, we can miss it. and In the English, we can miss it, too, because of the way kind of our broader church culture has painted Jesus. Right? Without understanding the Greek, we miss so much of the tone. And when the church reduces Jesus to this really soft character that he wasn't, people will read his words as such. But if you read the Greek and you study the grammar, which come to find out in my adult life, grammar's super important, so kids stay in school and study grammar. What you're going to see is that he's giving this very pointed and angry reply. The verb let, that's an imperative. Uh, just like do not forbid, they're both imperatives, which means they're commands. Jesus is commanding them. Let them come to me. Do not forbid them. But the verb for, for, for uh, sorry, but the verb for let is, is in the aorist tense. And then the verb for do not forbid is in the present tense. So he's commanding them to stop doing something right now. Stop. Enough. It's a firm command. You cannot let them come, do not forbid them. Done. You cannot forbid the children. Not now, not in the future. Do not forbid them. He's giving these two particular imperatives. And the Greek tells us, the Greek tells us that he's issuing a command to tell them to stop doing something. And then when you look at Mark's gospel in Mark 10 14, you can really see that he's mad. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. He's greatly displeased. You all may have had moments when you were greatly displeased, but you are not the son of God. Can you imagine what it must be like when the son of God is greatly displeased with you? He's mad. How dare you forbid the children of God to come to me? Have, Have you literally not been listening to anything that I've been saying to you? How dare you? Do not forbid those children from coming to me. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. And at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We just studied this a month ago. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. He literally just got done teaching that to the disciples. And it wasn't just words. He physically brought a small child into the midst of them to make a visual point about children and the kingdom of heaven. Using a child as an example, as his illustration. And now, a whole bunch of real children are being presented to Jesus. Their parents desiring that, that hands, his hands are laid on them and that he prays for them and he blesses them and the disciples go and rebuke the parents. And then Jesus, angry, tells them to stop. Let them come to me. You may not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 15, and he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Christ rebukes the disciples and he goes and lays his hands on the children, and then they scoot. Nobody, nobody who has read the Bible, who has thought about God's covenant, should be surprised that children are important in the kingdom of heaven. And nor should we really be surprised at the disciples' response. See, sometimes in life, it's easy for us because we just read in the chapter before. <laughs> How could it be like that? But we all know in real life that sometimes we need things told to us over and over and over and over again. And many times it does take a strong rebuke from the ones that we are accountable to for us to turn and see the error, turn from and see the errors of our ways, especially when it comes to children. It can be easy to feel like kids are a burden. They take a lot of time. They make money. They're messy. They're loud. I was an only child. Learning to love noise is something that is growing on me. (laughs) I'm getting a lot better though. I am a lot better than I used to be. I was used to a lot of quiet for a really, really long time. And now five kids in the house that constantly has visitors, Right, our home is a revolving door of human being. And as I wrote this while I was typing this, there were four middle school boys in my basement for Tristan's birthday, making a whole bunch of noise. We have kids and our kids' friends and our friends and the church community, right? There's almost always constantly noise, right? That can be overwhelming if you're not used to it. I mean, even those that fawn and helicopter over their kids will claim they need a break from their children. Oh, I just need a break. And I think part of the challenge, and I I blame this all, I mean, I blame most of our cultural issues on the church. I think one of the big challenges with kind of the modern American church model is that they have helped promote this misguided approach of separating families. I remember the first big evangelical church that we attended. It had fog machines and confetti and some lasers and sharks with lasers on their heads and all kinds of cool things. Big production team. There were probably 5,000 people in the service. Maybe a boom camera. We were talking about that a little bit earlier. Probably had a boom camera or two. But the downstairs facility was this huge youth area. I mean... Huge is the understatement of the century. This place was huge, and it was beautiful, and it had everything you could imagine. It had games, and it has a gym, and it has video games, and every trendy thing in the modern youth movement was down there, and then just like a little sprinkling of the gospel on top. It was a whole bunch of fun, and a whole bunch of kids, a little bit of the gospel on the top. And I've gone to good churches that preach the Bible that still encourage parents of kids to separate the kids. Make sure you get your tag for your kid and send them downstairs so that everybody can have a break. We don't want the children interrupting the service because they could be a burden. And what if somebody's singing a sea shanty and they see, oh, it's too loud and the baby cries, hypothetically speaking. Um, (laughs) Right? Like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen if there's a teeny bit of noise? We meet next to a kitchen, so you guys are all totally used to noise. But this idea, like, if we just send the kids downstairs, if we put the kids in a workbook, and when I was a kid, in the Episcopal Church, it was the basement with a workbook. Now it's video games. But, and, then, and, and not to, to, to rip too hard on youth pastors, I mean, they, they're there really trying to care for these kids, but they get 52 hours a year. And a lot of parents think that's the children's religious education, on top of the fact that they can feel like, well, we, our children won't be a burden here in the service. because they might make noise, or they might cry, or they might need to be fed. So it's way better if we just split the families up and then have other people also not attend worship so they can care for our kids who are also not attending worship. Do you see the problem? You're also asking other people not to go to church so these kids don't have to go to church so the families can be separated because the church is saying it's probably going to be better for everybody if the little kids don't sit in the service. And the parent's get a break you see the issue here it truly is an issue and it, and it was easy for so many of us us included to buy into this because it was really fun to get a little tag the kids do a thing and they have a thing oh my child's was Sunday, but it was great oh we had a great time did you learn anything about jesus i think so i mean it was a great hour-long program and the moms and the dads got to focus on worship And then they could think about, well, I don't, I, me, 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 me. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want these things. I don't want to have to parent my children by telling them you need to sit still. It's okay. You can sit still for this. Or if you need to move around, you can move around in the back. It's okay. Right? Uh, Let me teach you how to listen. Now you're old enough where you can pay attention. Let's take a little notes. Did you bring your Bible with you? Right? I mean, what happens if the pastor says something that the kids might ask about in the car ride home. You can avoid all that, too, if you send the kids out of the room and they don't have to hear it with you. If you think about it, it's actual utter nonsense. It's such a terrible way to lead by example. But many of us have done it because it's easy to do. But when you really think about it and you really think about children, and you realize your children are not a burden... They are the example of how we are to approach the Lord. You can understand more, and we'll talk about it here in a minute, why we do what we do with all the families and the way we do it. Again, Matthew eighteen one through 4 Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called the little child to him. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, who humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. You see, this is where leading by example, where the rubber hits the road. We are called to be people who are mature in our knowledge. Jesus said to be like children does not to be immature. We are called to be mature in our knowledge, but in our malice and our humility, we are to be like babies. We are to be like children. How are we to train up children to be knowledgeable in the Lord if parents aren't raising them in the Lord, in all of Christ, for all of life? If they're not doing the Christian life with their children? One of the things, uh, the main reasons that that I love the CREC is all the churches do family-inclusive worship. It is a staple of our church movement is family-inclusive worship. When, when we went to rent this space here, and they said, well, I didn't think there was going to be Sundays available. And when I called, called them, and he said, well, we don't have a nursery. And I was like, I don't want a nursery. That's ridiculous. We want all the kids with us. And he's like, great, let's start Sundays in a few weeks. Everybody else that had looked at this space said no, because there was nowhere else to hide the children. There was nowhere else to like, put them off in the corner somewhere we are a family-inclusive church. That's why we don't offer a daycare or a nursery or children or even a youth program. We don't have a youth group, but we have a youth group. We had a youth group last night. They were playing the piano and making music and running around and doing Nerf Wars, and on Wednesday nights, we have a youth group. What we don't have is a program that separates the youth from their families, intentionally taking them away from their parents. You see, we have activity bags and the coloring that the kids in the back have here, and we have snacks and things like that, or used to, I don't know if we still do, we should. There's toys, there's things to keep the kids engaged here in this room with their parents while everybody is hearing the gospel being shared. We are a family-inclusive church because we believe in family-inclusive life. Because we acknowledge our duty as a church to the children. We as a church have a duty to the children. Because we are a church that believes in the hope of a thousand generations, right? That's, we believe in a thousand generations. Our God is a covenantal God. One of the biggest shames of the dispensational, like, big Eva churchman we were talking about last night out of the grill, is that it's infected, and that is the movement that's kind of infected a majority of American Christianity, is it's this separation from the covenant of God. So now we're going to break this time up into these little, these little buckets that aren't connected at all. The Jews understood the concept of covenant. Christians, up until the dispensational movement, understood the importance of covenant. We understand the importance of covenant. Genesis uh, 26, 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lambs. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Descendants. Plural. They will multiply. They will multiply to be so great as the stars of heaven. I mean, I know I... talk a lot about the stars and how much they overwhelm me. and Just go camping or go hunting and look at the night sky. The descendants of God's people are greater than the stars of heaven. That's incredible when you think about that. Have you thought about how many stars there are in heaven? Genesis 17, 10 through 14. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. My covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant." God had a, a physical sign for male infants in the Old Testament. Eight days old. The sign of circumcision. A sign of the covenant. They didn't have to profess faith. They didn't have to give testimony. And actually, nothing magical took place after the circumcision. Some pain and some healing. But nothing magical took place, right? It, didn't, it, it was a sign. It was a sign of the covenant. Our God is a faithful, covenantal God. Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 16. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which I commanded you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that your Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy with which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock. You shall be blessed above the peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock." And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. This is a covenant that extends to all of God's people for all of time. Nowhere does it just say that this extends to people who have come to a suitable age who profess specific points of faith as outlined in, not the Bible, 1115. This is why we encourage families to do life together, to not outsource your family, especially never to split up in church. It's also one of the reasons that we practice paedo-baptism and communion here, infant baptism, and we allow the children to come to God's table. Now, these are both incredibly important topics. Uh, ones that I feel very passionately about, and they're also ones that deserve more time than I have to give in the sermon today. Uh, But if you are new to Reformed worship and you have questions about why we baptize babies and why we allow children to the table, I would be happy to answer them. It's probably worth, at some point in the future, another Sunday school or an outpost to talk about why we participate with children the way we do uh, within, within baptism and communion. But my short answer for you, my short answer for you is, we do these things because they're in the Bible and because God, the children are part of God's covenant. We do these things because they're in the Bible and because kids are a part of the covenant of God. They are the future hope of the kingdom of God externalized. They are living, breathing hope. And this discussion is actually nothing new. On his commentary on this passage, John Calvin specifically attacks the Anabaptists. They were pacifists who also didn't baptize their children until they professed faith. So I'll let his words speak for himself. He says, to exclude from the grace of redemption those who are of that age would be too cruel. So I'm small children. And therefore it is not without reason that we employ this passage as a shield against the Anabaptists. They refuse baptism to infants because infants are incapable of understanding the mystery which is denoted by it. We, on the other hand, maintain that since baptism is the pledge and figure of the forgiveness of sins, and likewise the adoption of God, it ought not to be denied to infants, whom God adopts and washes with the blood of his Son. Their objection, that repentance and newness of life are also denoted by it, is easily answered. This idea that you have to see somebody be and repent in life before you can baptize them. Infants are renewed by the Spirit of God, according to the capacity of their age, till that power which was concealed within them grows by degrees and becomes fully manifest at the proper time. Again, when they argue there is no other way in which we are reconciled to God and become heirs of adoption than by faith, yeah, we admit to this as adults. But with respect to infants, this passage demonstrates it to be false. Certainly, the laying on hands was not a trifling or empty sign. Jesus wasn't just laying his hands on people, right? It was with purpose, and he was the Messiah. So Jesus' laying of hands on people had purpose and power. He says, certainly, the laying on of hands was not a trifling or empty sign. And the prayers of Christ were not idly wasted in the air. But he could not present the infants solely to God without giving them purity. And for what did he pray for them? but that they might be received into the number of the children of God. Hence it follows that they were renewed by the Spirit to the hope of salvation. In short, by embracing them, he testified that they were reckoned by Christ among his flock. And if they were partakers of spiritual gifts, which represented by baptism, it is unreasonable that they should be deprived of the outward sign. But it is, the presumption, and sacrilege, but it is presumption and sacrilege to drive far from the fold of Christ those whom he cherishes in his bosom. And to shut the door, and to exclude as strangers, those whom he does not wish to be forbidden to come to him. If Jesus Christ lets children come to him, why would we refuse them here? Children are obviously a part of God's flock. They're obviously part of God's elect. God has determined who are his before the foundation of the world. We believe that. The Bible tells us that. So why would we exclude children? Why would we have pretend markers for children to have to prove themselves? Why would we exclude children from a covenant that most certainly includes children? I mean, this is, this is the only place of hope that parents whose small children die in infancy can find hope. I mean, truthfully, if, if you don't believe in the election of the Lord and the covenant that extends for all of his people, and you are are a recipient of the unfortunate and unimaginable tragedy of an infant dying, then where is your hope? There is no hope. But we know that Jesus Christ picks all of his, who are his, before the earth was founded, which includes infants, and so we can rest assured that our God is a good God and cares for those that are his, even if they die in infancy. And why would we ever think, why would we ever think that Christ in his kingdom would exclude children? That's insane. Children are our future, which means we can never see them as a burden or something that we have to like, try to fit into our lives. What we need to be doing is looking at children in the manner of the blessing that they are, the future soldiers of the army of God. That's why Solomon tells us in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. See, that's our job as a church, is to train up the next generation in love and admonition and service to the Lord, whether you have kids or not, whether your kids are at home or not. Because we're a family and we have a responsibility to each other here. And this is why we baptize children. We baptize children because we are training them up as members of the covenantal family of God. We're not like sitting there doing this. Are they saved? Are they saved? Are they saved? Are they saved? What's their testimony? Did they do it? Did they do it? Did you say it well enough? Right? Think about, think about, fingers crossed. I hope they get it. I hope they get it. Oh, they got it. Oh, they didn't get it. Ah! It's, It's always this constant looking for looking for instead we are telling you that we are to raise our families our children as from the very beginning as covenantal members as recipients of the covenant of grace now could there be unregenerate children of course we pray not but of course uh, all things serve god's purpose and will and and we don't know but just think about this in practical terms Just just practical, because God, like, the applicative nature of theology is all very practical. That's the whole reason that God speaks to us in parables, and so we go take it out into practice in the real life, living it out of our fingertips. Think about if you raise your child as a member of the kingdom of God, and if you raise your child looking for them to be signs of a member of a kingdom of God. Right? If you raise your you baptize your babies, and you raise your children, and you tell them you are a member of Christ's kingdom, and you treat them as a member of Christ's kingdom, and you let them come to the table as a member of Christ's kingdom, and you constantly train them up to follow God's commands, because that's what a member of Christ's kingdom does, is you live like a Christian. Compare that to constantly questioning them, making them prove it. Do you really love Jesus? How much do you love Jesus? What's your testimony? How do you know you really love Jesus? Well, we're waiting for you to love Jesus so we can finally baptize you and you can be part of our community. You, you've made your own child an outsider. To make them prove their faith, it doesn't work. Because we are people that are called to lead by example. In, in flight instruction, we call this the law of primacy. What you learn first sticks first, right? It's hard to unlearn bad things that we learned. So how we raise our children really matters... Because we lead by example, and your kids are constantly watching you. (laughs) I mean, the woman at the beginning, her method was wrong. But her statement at the beginning was right. Parents must set the example. Those of you without kids in the home or without kids, you must set the example with the children that God has blessed you to interact with. And you set this example by living as a redeemed member of Christ's church, by living as a Christian, and then training other people to do the same. It's a beautiful thing about families that still live as multi-generational families. Older generations train younger generations, which train next generations, right? Instead of this, like, how are your kids? I don't know, one of them lives in New Zealand. We see them every four years. Members of the covenant teach other members of the covenant how to live covenantal lives. Members of the covenant teach other members of the covenant how to live covenantal lives. That's why we, we just talked about how to help our brothers or sisters who fall into sin, to bring them back into the covenant, to bring them back into the church. Right? Our 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 goal is always to reunite and reconcile as people, not to push people outside of the camp. So of course this grace is extended to children. Of course and let's be honest, of course, children can be in faith. Talk to children about God and see how they react, and then go talk to a 45-year-old about God and see how they react. Children understand understand the mystery and the wonder of God's world in, in so many ways that adults miss. One of, one of your kids last night with a cat was so excited about a cat. And she came just right in the middle of, I was to tell us, I think it was, was in Ophelia, came to tell us about the cat. And it was incredible because her mind was blown by this cat. The beauty, the simplicity, the miracle of the cat that God has put. So if we explain to her that God created that cat... She understands. But then you go to, you go to some 45-year-old size, and like, well, actually, primordial goo, 15 and a half billion years ago, magically turned into a cat later. How'd you get there? Of course children are in faith. Children can see the mystery and the beauty and the glory of God that a lot of times us as adults in our day-to-day routine just totally miss. That's why having children allows us to to experience God in, in, in different ways, right? To see the world through the eyes of a child because children understand mystery and wonder. Adults have been conditioned to miss the miracle. Kids are our hope. Paul even tells women that they're saved through childbearing. First Timothy 2.15 Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Psalm 127, 3-5 through five, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows at the hand of a warrior, so are, children, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Everybody needs to read the Psalms more. David tells us that children are a heritage from the Lord. The f- Fruit of the womb is a reward. They become arrows in the hands of a warrior, uh, are, are the children of one's youth. You should have a quiver full of them. You should totally have a quiver full of them. You all should have a quiver full of them. Yes, indeed, a man is happy when he has many. Think about this. Think about a quiver full of godly, moral, God honoring, joyful, rowdy, rambunctious warriors for the Lord. Uh, a group of children that are not afraid of the enemies at the gate, a group of children that don't live in fear because they have the strength of the Lord because they were led by parents who didn't live in fear because they had the strength of the Lord. How much more hopeful could that be? I have never, I have never been filled with more joy than I have in these last four years than being home with my family and with my children. And I can, I can speak from experience because I was for a very long time a rarely present father. I was gone, I I was traveling, I was rationalizing when I was home, and I certainly wasn't training my children up in the manner of the Lord by leading by example. I used to be crazy annoyed by the noise. I used to buy the lie that I had to outsource my family to other people. schools, Sunday schools, everything. I, I was like the disciples, wanting to rebuke Wanting to to make the decision to control where the time needed to be spent, and thank God God opened my eyes. He opened my eyes to see the future that is in the children, to see the the future that exists in the children that are in the covenant of God. Not just because they didn't come up and like make their profession of faith and like or testimony, but because it's God's people raising the next generation of God's people as God's people. One of the biggest surprises for me personally has been my teaching at Logos Online in middle and high school. I've always enjoyed teaching. I used to say I could never in a million years ever teach kids. I didn't have any desire. I mean, literally, I used to meet people who were middle school teachers and I was like, why? Why would you want that job? Did you know they're loud and messy? (laughs) God works in these incredible ways I now have the, the blessing to teach over 80 students this year. I'll have well over 100 students next year. I, it is the most fun, most joyful thing outside of being your pastor that I have ever done. And, and the reason is is because I am constantly amazed and impressed by the quality of the students that show up to our school that are raised in homes by Christian parents that are living out all of Christ for all of life. These kids are smart. They, they ask incredible questions. They dive deep. They're incredibly funny. They laugh at my dad jokes. They know when to use the serrated edge. They know when not to use the serrated edge. But ultimately, ultimately, they know where their salvation comes from. And they want to take that salvation and live as redeemed members of Christ's kingdom, going out to build this world for Christ, not for their own desires. That's hopeful because you can get wrapped up in the cyclone of the public prisons... What did we call it yesterday, the government gulag? is that what you say? Yeah, the government gulag. Like We can get wrapped up in the cyclone of the government gulag. And then you can look at these kids that are probably really smart, but nobody's really been leading them. And so they're buying this huge lie, and, and nobody's prepared them to go be adults. It's easy to lose hope there. Good news is it's never too late, by the way. That's why us impacting all these children's lives, that work that you guys do with your goddaughter is so incredibly important. Because we can plant seeds, we want to plant seeds in good soil, we want to help till and nurture good soil so that those people will go and fix these mistakes as they go leave their children in the future. But these kids, all kids are our hope. And so we have to be people who revere children. We have to be people who want to learn humility from children. We need to be people who are in awe of children. Just hang out with babies. Hang out with babies. It's incredible. Be in awe. Look at the world. Look at God through the lens and the manner in which children do. And then lead them into maturity in the wisdom of the Lord. It's incredible. Think about the families that built the cathedrals over centuries. They were building buildings that they would never worship God in, but they were building it for people in the future who would get to worship God there. Because it's important to build even if you don't reap all of the reward of it right now. We're not building for ourselves. We're building for God's kingdom because it's not actually about you. We are the people who are building for our children's children. Proverbs 13.22 A good man leaves no inheritance to his children's children. But the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. We are here to leave inheritances both material and in wisdom for our children's children. For our grandkids, grandkids, grandkids. That's a real legacy. It is is a Christian legacy that goes on through generations that continues to serve the Lord in great joy. But this can only be done with the right view of the future, with an optimistic view of what the gospel tells us. It's called the good news for a reason. So many people in the church need to be reminded that it's not bad news, that it's good news. We call it the gospel for a reason. And that these wonderful covenantal children are not a burden. They're not a loud, messy drag that takes us away from the things that we want to do. Instead, they're a glorious, glorious opportunity for us to shepherd and to build and to love. So I pray that, that we never stand in the way from experiencing the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we may commit to raising them all in the love and the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Proverbs seventeen six. Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Children's children are the crown of old men. I have yet to meet a grandfather that does not think that his grandkids are not the crown of his life. Children's children are a crown of old men, and the glory of children is their father. Let us be people here that revere and love and build up children. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're so incredibly grateful. We're so incredibly grateful for you and your salvation and our ability to come to you as children. And so, Lord, we pray that we continue to approach you as children in humility but not in knowledge, that you strengthen us in maturity and our knowledge and our love for you, and that we can see, see you and this world through the eyes of humble children in awe, in awe at the beauty, in awe at your creation in awe at the salvation that you provide us. Thank you for sending Jesus to us, Lord. Thank you for washing us clean. Allow us to be the kingdom builders forever and ever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.